Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of her new book is A List of Demonic Names, A Pocket Guide for the Paranormal Investigator, Exorcist, Psychic, and Metaphysical Practitioner, and... Monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And if you're looking to make any major decisions and want to find out the energy that's surrounding you and that situation, I highly recommend consulting Ginger because she's very good at that type of work. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Pat Benacasa. And we are here to talk about creativity, inspiration, art, spirituality, and how it all connects. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thank you, Gary. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on. So... What got you interested in the search for where our creativity and our inspiration comes from? I think every artist at some point, uh, I've been making art for about 40 years, and at some point you start to uh, wonder about that, you question that. You know, as a young artist, you come out of art school and you're supposed to fix everything, do everything, have all the answers, you work in your studio. But there are some times when you're working on something and you don't know, and you don't know how to resolve it. And over the years, I've learned to, to ask, like, help me with this, or you know, I don't know where I'm going with this. As opposed to saying, damn it, I can't do this or I'm having a hard time. So I think those questions about where does art come from? Where's this need for expression? Uh, where's this drive uh, connected to? Hmm. I think it's a bigger, a bigger picture. I do too. You know, I've been, I wouldn't say I'm an artist, but I've been creative all my life. I've played, you know, guitar since I was a kid, wrote songs and. Um, obviously, I do the podcast. I've written a book and short stories and poetry. And you're right. You know, we all come to a point where we kind of wonder, like, well, where is this coming from? Like, like, is like, because my best work, like the best things that I've created, it feels like I didn't make them. And and it's like, why is that? Why is that? I feel like I am not the one responsible for this. And then you almost feel guilty for taking credit for your own work. I listen, I understand what you're saying. Sometimes I'll do something, I'll stand back and I think, whoa, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Uh, but it's by your hand. It's by your efforts. But in a sense, it's like we're going through the motions of it and putting our, our passion into it. But then some, some magic happens and you stand back and you look and you go, whoa, where did this come from? 
Yeah. I mean, that's that's the beauty. That's the power of art making. I mean, you can be in the trenches with a painting for weeks, months, and then all of a sudden, there it, it just comes to life. You see it. That's also, you know, what I had a guest tell me, like the word inspiration comes from the, fa- the phrase in spirit. Yes. Yep. So, so obviously ancient cultures and earlier um, artists were aware of the fact that their masterpieces may not have been their own. Well, you know, that's an interesting point because I think it goes back to a PR campaign in the 15th century. Giorgio Vasari wrote this book, The Lives of the Artists. And no one had ever done that before because artists were just like craftsmen, if you will. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about them being divinely uh, guided, that they are just almost like gods among men uh, making this art. So he really imbues this whole mythology about the creative genius and spirit moving through them. So it goes from ancient times into that Renaissance time when when artists are really looked at as uh, carriers of the divine. Do you think there's a difference between an artist and a prophet? Oh, I don't know. I think it's all mixed together. I think that's a great question. I think that artists in some ways um, are prophets in the land of art making. You know, as an artist, you go in directions you don't know why you're going. You're compelled. You try things. You take risks. You, you just do all this stuff in the land of the unknown. Yeah. We don't make art from what we know. I, I, I really don't think so. I think it's that creative risk-taking. Mm-hmm. And like the prophet, the prophet goes into unknown places because they're called to do it. There's a, there's a drive. So I think your analogy of the prophet, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you, you, that's a nice co- uh, combination. Yeah, I think so too. Like when I read, you know, like, like in the Bible, there's all different types of prophecies. And, you know, and I wonder, like, in, in mythologies even, you know, like a mythology, is it a work of art? Is it a prophecy? Is it a vision that somebody has? But it all comes from the same place, which is imagination. Yes, yes. And then it goes into the question, like, um, you, you have to, for imagination to take hold, we have to be willing to go there. We have to be willing to, um, to break with time. And how do I say that? Like, in the West, we have this notion where time is fixed with assumptions, yeah. There's no room for contradiction. Mm-hmm. And then this beautiful thing called imagination, it's a time buster. Imagination uh, well, it doesn't, even give a, it doesn't give a rip about time. And imagination holds these multiple contradictions. It, it's just such a powerful place to be, to, to allow one's uh, imagination to go. And to me, we learn that as children playing. That's where imagination, you know, when a kid's in the sandbox at age four, no one's tapping little Sally on the shoulder saying, no, honey, drag that shovel and make a road. And now you, no, Sally's in there digging up, making, you know, these multiple worlds. 
I mean, that that's the power of play. And that's what mm-hmm. artists do. You go into your studio and you play. And I'm not trivializing, and I don't mean it in that way. What I'm saying, there's a certain amount of freedom that our imaginations give us. Mm-hmm. If we let it. If we let it. Do you have a process of your own that you use to kind of connect to that creative side of yourself? Oh, Gary. (laughs) Well, okay. I think of it this way. When we came down the cosmic baby chute, we did not come into this world alone. I believe, and this is my belief, that we come in with beloved ancestors. Not all our ancestors. There's some ancestors ancestors you don't want near you. I'm talking about those that love and care about you. Mm-hmm. And so we come into this world, and I, I do believe that they are with us all the time. And look, look at the ancient Romans. In their architecture, when you walk into a Roman house, what do they have flanking the walls? Busts and portraits of their ancestors. So every day they would walk by that. I remember reading that like 30, 40 years ago and it knocked the wind right out of me. I thought, whoa, what are those Romans doing? What is it that they know? But you know, in your 20s, you kind of don't put things together right away. Mm -hmm. So after a few, a many few decades, I began to see the beauty and the power of being around your ancestors on a daily basis. So when I make art, I, I ask them for help all the time. I can't figure this out. Help me with this. And I've made pieces that I, geez, I just scratch my head. I think, whoa, how, you know, how did this come to be? I, 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 did, I made a, a skylight, a seven ton glass and steel waterfall skylight. It's based on pure compound angles, geometry, overlays of colored glass. Mm-hmm. And now, I almost flunked out of, of uh, geometry. I went to a Catholic school. Need I say more? I wasn't. Yeah, you smiled. You get it. And the nun felt bad for me, so she gave me a D minus. But I'm also ADD and dyslexic. So I don't know why the hell X, Y, and Z are even talking to each other. I don't care about A, B, and C. But I can see it in my head. I can see it. I can see that beautiful geometry in my head. But to break it down into uh, mathematical uh, situation. It was just a nightmare. So coming full circle, uh, that piece, uh, when I look at just the, the, the complexity of it, but it was like, I, I felt like I, I knew I, I, I followed what to do. And I really don't think I made that piece alone. I really don't. I don't think I made any of my work alone, frankly. Hmm. And that's not just talking about on the physical plane to do a project of that magnitude. There are all these great people you work like, like the steel yard guys, the welders. You want to see art in motion. You just watch those guys with a welding torch and steel. Oh, man. that. Okay, I won't get started. I, I got to come back. I get excited. When I used to teach, the kids would say, oh, God, she's going in the ADD car. So I'm just going <laughs> to park it and just stop right there. Okay. That's fascinating. You know, that. That's like a whole other aspect of it, though, is that you can find this creativity and you can find art in every type of work, too. You know, every, yes. every job comes with its own unique opportunities to be creative and, and to connect. Oh, I agree with you. I'm not, 
I wouldn't dream of saying that art artists have a corner on creativity or people in the arts. I think we're all imbued with that. It goes back to how much we play as children. Mm -hmm. And do we keep that playfulness with us as we go through life? That's where I think creativity resides. I don't care if you're a CPA or a nurse. I don't care what you do. Creativity means that you come up with this crazy answer to a problem while you're eating a sandwich because you're looking at the bread and all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, that's what I need to do. And that's what creativity is. So it doesn't matter if you're a homemaker, whatever you do. I just think we all have that. I think we're hardwired with it. Do you ever connect to your creativity or come up with answers or ideas from dreams? You know, I don't. I, I don't uh, do that with dreams. Um, what I do at night, like I'll go to bed. I always say goodnight to all my ancestors. I say, you know, the ones that whoever came today to help me, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'll talk to them. And then I list the things that I'm grateful for every night because that gives me the perspective. But then if I have a problem in a project or work, I, I just, I sleep on it. I say, okay, I don't have to remember what you told me, but just let me wake up with it. Okay. So, and then I wake up and the next day I think, oh, that's what I need to do. I wish I could dream. I hear great stories of people having these vivid dreams about their art making. And I, I wish I was one of them, but I'm not. Hmm. Interesting. Um, because I don't know. Like, I know for me personally, I sometimes I'll go, I'll have a problem and I won't be able to solve it for like weeks. And then I'll go to sleep one night and in the middle of the night I'll wake up and I'm like, there's the answer. It's like, yes. it, it came without, because those answers sometimes come to me when I'm in my most relaxed, calmest state and I'm not getting in my own way. Oh, that, okay, there it is. When we get out of the way, the answers are there. I, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. My biggest problem is when I demand, like, I got to know the answer to this. I don't know what I'm doing. I get mad. And then it turns into a shame spiral. Why can't I figure this out? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I teach art, and I taught at art high schools and uh, college art programs. And I, I just tell kids, you know, if you can't figure it out, sleep on it. But stay the hell away from the shame spiral. It's not about berating yourself if you can't figure it out. It's just about relaxing with it, letting it go. Mm -hmm. It'll come to you. But you know that, Gary, that takes trust. It does. You've got to trust, right? Yes. Yeah, you have to trust. And sometimes it's not even just your, the process or yourself, but... Also, the other thing I find is answers will come through other people in conversations, oh, too. Yeah. Like, the yeah. conversation may not have anything to do with what I'm doing, but I might be talking to somebody or, or overhear somebody, and then, like, boom, there's the answer that I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. But that's the beauty of it. Um, I think it speaks to how, how open you are. Mm -hmm. That if you're talking to someone about something totally unrelated – there's a part of you that, that's always listening. And that's a beautiful thing. I think gifts come to us many ways. <laughs> and, and, and it also seems, you know, and like you were saying, like, like we get stuck in that spiral when we start demanding of ourselves to come up with the answer, and it really becomes yeah. very counterproductive. But when, oh, we, yeah. when we let go of it and just let it happen, 
Yeah. That's how the process sort of seems to go the best. I would agree with that, but I don't think the culture is set up for that. I think we we are based on a success model. Mm-hmm. Have a problem, fix it. Do this, do that. If A, then B. It's like there's always uh, this need for immediate solution. Mm-hmm. And art making uh, is not about immediate. Whether you're writing or, or making music, it's just not about uh, the instant answers. Like sometimes I can do a painting, I'm so lost, and then after I finish it, I don't know how to look at it because now it's making me the stranger, and I look at it, and sometimes it takes me months to emotionally catch up to where I've been. And that's that whole part of uh, embracing the mystery of art making, and the, the unknown. Interesting. So you've created pieces and then had to like step back and absorb like actually what it is that you've created? Oh yeah. I mean I sometimes like I'm so in the mix of it, I can't see it with um fresh eyes. I'm in the trenches. I'm in the trench and then once I start to step out of the painting and it's in the studio or on the wall or before it leaves, I you know, it's like weeks or months later I I really think, whoa. I get it now. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I think we operate on multiple levels as, um, as artists. Uh, you know, the artist that makes what, what's going through our head, the things we're trying to achieve. And then here's the real, here's the truth of it for me. Um, when I start a painting, I have this idea in mind. Now, as a younger artist, I think, yes, I'm going to make this painting. It's going to be about X, Y, and Z. So you start the painting. And next thing you know, the painting's not letting you in. Frankly, if I could just say it, it's kicking your ass to the next zip code. It's not letting you in. And you work on it day in, day out for hours. Then at some point, the painting lets you in. And it it presents where it needs to go. Oh, and that's, oh, that's, that's the alchemy. Mm-hmm. You start with an idea and you think, you know, my ideas are so small. If I, if I make a painting straight out of my ideas, I think it's going to be very boring. So the fact of the matter, you start the painting and then the next thing you know, you can't get in the painting. It's just shutting you out. Then all of a sudden you see a glimmer of possibility where it's going, where it wants to go. So you throw out your ideas and say, yeah, yeah, wait for me. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm right there. You know? So do you think that artwork or pieces of art that people create sort of have its own life, a life of of its own? Or its own being in a way? I think I live on an energetic plane. Mm -hmm. In other words, I, I feel energy. I, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I I wish I were someone who could channel or do that or psychic. I'm not at all. But, I feel energy. I read, when I taught, I could tell you every kid coming into that room energetically, I could probably give you a pretty darn accurate story of what's going on in their lives. Just like, just their energy. And I think, um, the, I think things have energy. I think place has memory. Uh, you know, again, this is not non-Western thinking, but the world's very big. It's, we're in a global, uh, reality. Mm-hmm. So I do think that uh, 
There is an energy that works of art imbue. There's music that, you know, written, what, 200 years ago that can bring you to your knees that's so poignant. It's not just, I don't know, there's a way that it embodies a truth or something that just cuts across nations, borders, gender, time, and just goes to the heart of us. So if you say, well, does it have an energy or does it have a presence? I'm going to say, yeah, I think it does. I agree. I, I agree that, that you know, works of art, songs, music, paintings, oh, yeah. you know, so especially like after the artist is already, is gone. It's like the, the actual work piece of work takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it becomes different things to different people and, and just starts filling different roles in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as the artist, you cannot control what the viewer brings to your work. You can't. They will bring their own joys and sorrows and vision and frustrations and success. They will bring to it. All we can do is release it into the world. And that's hard because, you know, really, we're little universe builders. When we make a painting, we're building our own little universe. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's not yours anymore. You got to put it out in the world and it has to fend for itself. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any artists that, that you sort of model yourself after? Uh, no. There are artists that um, I love, but not to to model myself. Frankly, Gary, most most of the art world when I was coming up was male. Right. And those models were male. So in the 70s, uh, when I was in art school, um, if you wanted to play with the boys, you had to, uh, you know, wear the, 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 the work boots, the fatigues, drop the F-bomb and maybe smoke cigarettes, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just not that way. I'm not that way. Um, I tried it, but it wasn't terribly successful. Um, so coming up in, in the 80s, I was represented by a gallery. They had 18 people. Two of us were women. So my models uh, coming up were really male in that sense. Yeah. And it wasn't until the 90s when there's all of a sudden you had the gorilla girls coming out of New York uh, putting on gorilla faces and then attacking the museums with posters and, and um, saying, where are women in your collection? Where are the women curators? So there was this thing that was starting to happen across the board. Um, so, you know, there, there are a lot of wonderful women artists, and now we're starting to see that they get their due. Hmm. That, that's kind of a strange thing because, you know, when I when I think of art and painting and things like that, to me it almost seems like is coming from a feminine type of energy, a creative, really? uh, you know, because mm -hmm. you're giving birth to something new, you yeah. know, and, that, and that's what a female's role is, you know. So it, it's interesting that it would have been that it's been male dominated for so long. Yeah, yeah, but it was, and it was it was terribly oppressive. Um, but then again, you know, we're living at a time when things are coming un undone. With COVID, we now see that the gatekeepers uh, were blown out of the water 
because museums had to close, theaters had to close, uh, performance venues. So the traditional gatekeepers, like curators, directors, for two years, that's been frozen. So artists went to online, had their own shows online, people performed online, people got really creative. But that whole notion of gatekeeper, that I think that's a hundred year old paradigm that is is in a shift. It's in Absolutely. a shift. Yeah, it is changing. It changed really yeah. quick when everything <clears throat> because now, you know, not just an art like like for me, just as a content creator, you know. I wouldn't have been able to create as much content and become as popular as I've become yeah. pre-COVID. Oh, my God. I know. I, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> the idea of, of uh, podcasts, and that's another <coughs> aspect. Now, if, if COVID had anything good to it, and, I, and I'm saying that very respectfully mm-hmm. because so many people have suffered from this. I mean, I mean okay. But the other aspect to it is that it is it, it it forced us to connect in different ways. So, for example, like right now, there are 424 million global podcast listeners. This is post-COVID. Yeah. And when you think about a podcast, Gary, what is it? It's it's a recorded conversation. That's all it is, and. So all of a sudden, podcasts are taking off like crazy, and I began to wonder about that. And I think it has something to do with hungering for a sense of community, for a sense of connection. And I think that's what this uh, podcast phenomena is all about. It is. You know? It's part of it. And I think the other part of it is, um, I think people are starting to wake up to... Um, the fact that they're just being fed garbage through mainstream media. <laughs> oh, don't don't even start down there. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, when you look at at uh, news outlets, when I get, when I look at news, I look at BBC, the India Times. I look at international news mm. uh, before I look at anything here. Uh, I want I want a broader picture and these podcasts my god they're investigating things they're questioning things i I think it's healthy yeah it's it takes new ideas and spreads them around yeah it makes people think yeah so you you do podcasting too as well right i'm a pot yes i'm a podcaster uh i'm kind of shocked by that uh in that um you know i'm an artist that's that's what I am. I I'm an artist, and um, I started podcasting about a year and a half ago. And what I realized that in doing the um, the podcast, because I thought, what the hell are you doing a podcast? You're you're an artist. You should be in the studio. That t- that tape that plays. Mm-hmm. And um, I I'm an artist that uses materials. And just, I use weird materials like sheet metal, shards of glass, wire. I'll use anything in my hands to make art. And then I realized that with podcasting, all I'm doing is portrait painting. That's all I'm doing. I'm, I'm painting portraits of people. Only instead of a palette of paints, I've got a palette of words. And it's called a podcast. And once I made peace with that in my head, I thought, of course, of course, that's what you do. You're a portrait painter with with uh, with the podcast. Yeah. And the other thing I do is when someone is a guest on my show, I do a graphic image of their life and work. 
I make a poster of them. And um, I do that in the beginning when I research them because I, I don't make sense of things until I make art out of it. So when I get all this information about somebody, all I do is start working on their graphic, then I know what to do and what to ask. So when I'm done, I have a, a portrait of these people. So I have to find a way of making art um, and the podcast. It's not just podcasting. It, it's like it's like opera. Opera's a like a full art form. You get sculpture, performance, painting. It's the whole enchilada. So for me, podcasting is making the poster of the of the guest and painting their portrait with words so that they can show who they are. Isn't that portrait painting? You know, you, yeah. you want to capture the spirit of somebody. That's very interesting. You know, one of the things that I have to find interesting, too, about podcasting is most of the people that I know in the podcasting field are people that um, were mus- music- musicians, writers, artists. Everybody I know that's in this field and that has stuck with it and have had success with it are people who have worked in other creative mediums. Hmm. What do you think about that? I think, um, you know, this is just one medium that, that is easily distributed. It's easy to distribute. And also, um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just, it's consumable. It's consumable, I would say the word would be, because a lot of people now, they're, they're not as patient as they used to be, so they're, not gonna, yeah. they're less likely to sit down and read a book. Um, and, and during COVID, like you couldn't go to an art museum or walk around yeah. different stores and stuff like that. So this was something that, um, you know, one people like who couldn't play music or go out and do those things anymore found podcasting as a, as a creative outlet. Yeah, and, and that has worked, and it's also has done the same for the people who want to consume it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. So, so what is your experience though, like with podcasting? Like, like do you interview people? Um, yeah, I bring them on. Yep. Um, and my my podcast is uh, filled to capacity, and it's for people too stubborn to quit and too creative not to make a difference. Hmm. And, and that gives me lead way. I early on, I had a woman who survived a plane crash, and when she woke up in the ER, she heard herself this voice saying. This is not your old life ending. This is the beginning of a new rich life. Whoa, how can you not have somebody like that on your show? Right. Um, so I've interviewed uh, people like that. Uh, another one, a woman who's been a nomad mm-hmm. traveling uh, throughout the United States for 12 years. Uh, writers, uh, public art people, people putting art in communities that are very run down and rejuvenating those communities. I'll talk to anybody who's making a difference. I love those people. I love anybody who's out there doing stuff. Those are the people I want on the show. Interesting point. You know, a lot of people dismiss artists as flaky people who are lazy and don't want to go to work and just play around all day. But that's not really the case. Oh, God, no. I don't know any of my colleagues or students that would fit that bill. Uh, it's certainly not my creative practice. I research the hell out of everything. I work with materials. I work with people. Uh, deadlines are important. And my colleagues are the same way. 
I think that comes out of that bohemian stereotype of the dandy uh, out of the 18th century. And that kind of has stuck on to artists until you know one or two or three. Mm-hmm. And you see that that is not the case. Well, it certainly has stuck, especially to musicians, because musicians always get a bum oh, rap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys do. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, earlier we, we, we were talking a little bit about getting at, out of our own way and inspiration yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the th- things that I wonder about sometimes is, like, especially in, in music anyway, like, it seems like some of the best songs and best performers did their work under the influence of drugs. And when they've stopped using those chemicals, their creativity diminished. Do you think that is an actual thing, or do you think it's just a a myth that musicians sort of believe, or artists in general probably sometimes believe? I know that students have asked me that, you know, young people, about this whole thing about, I can't be an artist unless I'm higher than a kite, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that is something I've... I've never bought into for myself. Uh, I want the full intensity of being present in the moment. I want it. I want to be cognizant. I want to know. Uh, I want to feel everything. And so um, the whole thing about the drug mystique, and I grew up in the 60s. I mm-hmm. mean, my God, talk about generation, <laughs> you know, Mo, Janice, Jimmy. I mean, we could just go on and on. I think that's a stereotype that um, that doesn't really apply, uh, I would say. I don't know how truthful it is. Maybe there are those artists that had to do that or find uh, a way to make art that it would free them. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, I, I would disagree with that. And also, I, I'll be really honest mm-hmm. with you. When I was uh, growing up, uh, I was kind of into a lot of stuff. I mean, I was raising hell and stuff, and I was drinking a lot. I'm talking, you know, middle school, high school. I, I was really, and I remember one night I was just drunk, teenager, and I was sitting in the middle of a highway. And all of a sudden I asked myself, do you want to be a drunk or do you want to be an artist? I'll never forget that. It was like that is so fresh in my head, that moment, that everything changed for me. I got up. I went home. That was the end of drinking. Because mm. the only thing I have ever wanted in my life was to be an artist. That's the only thing. I knew it before I was even verbal. I've always known that. That was a calling. It's not a career. It's not nice. It's not. It's my calling. That's why I'm made. That's why I'm here. So, you know, the idea of, of um, being an artist and drinking or getting high, uh, for me, that's a dangerous way to go. And it's not even fulfilling for me. So I want to give you an honest context to what I'm, I, my feelings about that. Mm-hmm. And I encourage kids, stay the hell away from the drugs. Get to know your creative practice. Find out who you are. Because then you can handle anything. If you know who you are, not in a haze not induced, your feet are on the ground, and you know what you're made of. You said something interesting. You said 
people using art to free themselves. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I think sometimes um, people feel constricted either through family structure, religions, whatever it is, societal expectations. I think that art is a place that people feel they have automatic autonomy and freedom. If you're a musician and you pick up a guitar, you're not worried about anything, but you start hearing the sound and what your fingers are doing and the magic that's happening. There's a freedom to it. There's a, there's a way that we allow ourselves to express to just to be, you know, the question is for a creative, how to be in the world. How do we be in this world? And so, Art is often a venue, a place to just express yourself directly. It's raw. It's there. Yeah, that you, you lose yourself in your work. Mm-hmm. It's permission. It's automatic. You don't have to say, Mother, may I? Yes, you may. May I put a blue on this canvas? Nobody thinks. You're just there grabbing the paints and mixing it up. It's about, I just think it's, it's yearning. It's yearning to be free. And I think that's encoded in all of us. The place without judgment. Oh, my God. You know, my vision has edges to it. When I, when I want other people's approval, I can almost feel the edges around my vision taking hold. And then I can't see what's actually there, seeking approval. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what stops people from expressing themselves what are other people going to think oh I, I don't know if i could do that well it's never been done like that before really should i you know should i should i should i you know who who gives a flying rip no when you're in the studio or you're alone with um, a piano or whatever instrument you play or you're a writer you just let it go i think that's how we find home our art is our home that's where we dwell mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's deep, you know. I, I, you're, but when you're in that place and you're creating and you're in that place without judgment, I know even for me, sometimes afterwards, I'm almost afraid sometimes to show it to people. Yeah. Because I don't yeah. want to be judged. And you're, you, you know what? That's okay. I think that uh, sometimes I finish the piece, I'll turn it against the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I'm at white heat. I gotta, I gotta simmer down. The, the reverse of that, though, Gary, is that when you have a good idea, I've often told students, don't talk about it. Do not talk to people about this wonderful idea in your head. Go to the studio, start making it. Don't share it. Don't open it up to uh, people that want to take pot shots. Well, why are you thinking that? Uh, well, that's not really, you know, you don't want to do that. So at the front end of the art making, hold it within the space of who you are. Try to figure out what it is this new idea is telling you. But on the reverse end, when you finish something, I don't know. I think sometimes I got to kind of embolden myself to handle any flack that's going to come my way. Now, as an older artist, <laughs> I don't really give it. I don't. I'm I'm in my seventh decade, Gary. My uh, edit button is gone. 
So at this point, when I say something or do something, either deal with it if you don't like it, leave. Take what you like, leave the rest. It does get but a little it, bit older, easier as we get older, doesn't it? Isn't it? it? Isn't it? I, that's the beauty of getting older. I, I love that, that every, every decade I could feel that edit button getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And mm. I do love that. I love that. It's like my pod, this podcast. I never edit anything. You talk about a lot of stuff. I love. It. I've listened to your podcast. You, I love the creative range. You just you just follow the ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what about blocks? Like when you are doing something and you hit that block, you know, like like a writer's block. It happens with all different types of creativity, whether you're playing music or writing yep. or podcasting. What do you, how do you get past the block? As a younger artist, when I got those blocks, I would panic and think, oh my God, I'm never going to make art again. And I see that in students, whether college level or high school. I have a block. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think I'm going to make art again. What, you know, I see it. I feel their fear. And I would do that too. I would go into the studio thing. What's wrong with me? You know, oh my, now I kind of figured it out on this side. I figured out, oh, and I tell kids, you got some new things floating around and you haven't caught up to them yet. That's not a block. You're having a realignment, man. You are, things are going on. Don't you think for a nanosecond, that's a block. You just haven't caught up to where you're going to go. Hmm. That's really good. That's really, really good. Because maybe that's it. Maybe we think we got a block. And when we start thinking we have a block, that actually creates it. When, yes. when, when really what we're experiencing is just a natural part of the process. It is. And you know what, Gary? Part of the process, I, I now... I'm waxing poetic, you know, like the sage. Oh, my God. I cannot tell you the number of times my temper tantrums in the... You know why artists have studios? So they can have temper tantrums in private. That's why you have a studio, okay? (laughs) So I I did not come easy to this. I'm very emotional. I'm right at you. So, you know, I lived through years of, oh, my God, I've got blocks. What's wrong with me? I got rejected from this show. Oh, my God, I'm not a good enough... You know, that nonsense. Anyways, um... This whole thing is about how we reframe our thinking. How do we reframe it? And so the idea of the artist block is to me a, a way to beat yourself up and to take out that awful measuring tape of why you don't measure up. And it has nothing to do with that. It just means that you have a lot of things inside of you that you're sorting through. And I tell students if that's happening to you, Go do something nice for yourself. Go to a coffee shop, have coffee, go read a book, go hang out with friends and trust and trust that beautiful, magnificent, creative self is working. Don't worry about it. Hmm. Is there a such a thing as bad art? Oh, I get that from kids all the time. Um, I'm going to say, yeah. But art is in the eye of the beholder. You can't say that there's some art that's bad, right? I mean, that's usually, and so it's like this cosmic cocktail party where anything goes and anything can be said, and it's just fine. 
for me, that's not art. That that's not my uh, my approach to art or my my thoughts about art. Um, I think there's a level of of what holds. You could look at it technically. Does this piece hold your interest? Mm-hmm. Are you challenged by it? Does it bring you in? Does it ask you to to just look and think about what's going on? And if you walk by a painting, someone yawns. Oh my God! Ask them: Is there such a thing as bad art? Well, there's art. There's art that doesn't invite you in. There's art that has has answered all the questions. There's no reason to look, look at it. You know, I don't care how you define it, but I think there's a criteria of excellence. And for me, does it pull the viewer in? I'm not talking about composition. That I'm saying, does it does it stop you in your tracks? Does it does it grab you by your heart throat and you go, whoa, like seeing a movie that just, you just, you, you just, oh my God, or a piece of music mm-hmm. or a piece of literature that you just read. Oh, I've read certain pieces over and over and over again for 20 years and it's like falling in love all over again. Hmm. So did I answer your question? Somewhat, <laughs> somewhat. But I, I wonder like, what about like the opposite way like like i for example uh, i i used to play in a punk band and then like afterwards i would go to like these open mics and play mm-hmm. some of my punk stuff and yep. the place would literally people would just freeze in shock not know how to react and leave yeah yeah i mean I, ca- I definitely caught their attention that's for sure you do you know like, like, is that art? Is that bad art? Or is that, is that a good art in a way that it's elicited this really powerful response from people? Like- let's, let's change the question, Gary. Mm-hmm. Instead of making a matter of judgment and opinion, if I show uh, a beautiful landscape painting to a lot of portrait artists, uh, they might not be hepped up about it. I may submit uh, I do these industrial paintings on sheet metal, okay, of these demolished work sites. If I enter that in a show of bucolic landscapes, mm-hmm. well, it's not going to get in there. So it's not a question, is the work good or bad? It's where do you align your work? Where are, where are people who will be open to it? So if you play punk in a group of maybe 50 and older, they may not resonate with it, but if you bring that same music into one of my art classes, those kids will be all over you because hmm. it speaks to them. So uh, when you look at the cycle of music uh, and what was constituted as, oh, my God, that's outrageous. That's not music. You know, rock and roll, that was offensive. <laughs> you know, when you look at all these different genres, right. uh, Debussy was considered ridiculous. I mean, when you every every moment, has its counter moment. And when new, something new comes in, someone might not like it. So I don't think it's a question, was my music good? Was it bad? Was it art? I don't think those are the, those questions don't have any standing in the reality of the situation. You played it in front of a group that might not have any inclination of what punk is. One of the funny th- things that would happen to me too is, is, is people that – Especially like in case people that didn't understand it would assume assumed that it was good performance art. Oh yeah, you always have that. And I'm like, yeah. that's you interesting. Have that. I don't know what you mean, but 
there's always that element that will take something that they don't know about or it's 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 considered crazy or wild go oh yes this is prescient this is art well here's the, here's the, here's the real test 50 years from now 100 years from now how, will it still be there will anybody look at it mm-hmm. is it, you know I, I think it's the test of time timelessness is a tough one too because our culture, our society, the things that we're used to, our language, the, the, the tools that we use, changes. So to make a piece that is timeless, you really have to hit on something that's been common to human beings from the beginning of time. I don't think any artist sets out to do anything timeless. I think it's that we are the vehicle or the channel our hard work, our discipline, our creative practice allows that channeling to come through. And then when you do make something that that seems timeless, it seems like everybody knows it. They look at it, you go, whoa, mm-hmm. whoa. And I don't. Th- I've never met an artist saying yes. I think today I'm going to make something time. I don't. I don't know anybody who thinks like that. But I think it happens. Um, but it doesn't just happen willy nilly. You have to work your ass off and you have to work hard and you, you have to have a creative discipline and, and a routine being in the studio every day for these things. If, if something's going to happen, you want to be there. Hmm. Interesting. But, but there is no timelessness. Like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Oh. I mean, it, I, to me, that's sort of timeless or, yeah. um, I think there's timeless works, absolutely. You know, Van there, Gogh. I mean, yeah, they're as fresh as the moment they were first played. There's something about that that does transcend gender, race, time, culture, nations, religions. It just cuts through everything and goes to the heart of us. Oh my God! And if I if I could interject, yeah. it took me years to figure out, like students would say, well, you know, what's art? Hey, B, what's art? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, I found the answer in Martin Heidegger when he asked the question, what is a thing? And he answered by saying, you know what a thing is by the way it gathers the world unto itself. I, I read that 30 years ago and knocked the wind right out of me. So to this, I would say art is a point of proximity that dissolves the distinction between our here and there and pulls us towards itself and each other. That's my definition of art. Do you think there's any divine truth that is sort of hidden in works of art or in the creative process? I'm not sure I understand the question, Gary. Can you say more? A piece of God. I... Or the universe. Whatever it is that's manifesting all of this. I, I, I do. I, I have a passion for sacred geometry. Geometry is the one thing through all my work you will find. And to me... I, I, I love sacred geometry. Mm-hmm. 
These forms, circle, triangle, square, are older than time. I do believe that this manifestation of the sacred, of the universe, of all that we are connected to, the animus mundi, that that which connects all, mm-hmm. is part of that creative process. It's human beings ex- expressing themselves. How that? How can that not be sacred? How how is that not? We are we carry the divine within us, and I'm not talking about a Judeo Christian definition. I'm talking right. about a spiritual definition. I want to make that clear that it, it's it's how we connect to all beings, to all things. And what better time to do it when you're making a piece of music or making a work of art or writing? Oh, my God. That Yes, there's evidence. I think in those moments we bear witness to, to the sacred. I completely agree. Yeah. How about love? You think love has to be in every work of art? Um. You know, I think that um, if you're bored making the art, the viewer's going to be bored looking at it. I've often told mm-hmm. that to kids in the studio. They're working, and the kid will say, I'm bored with this. I say, put it away. Don't worry about it. Go start something else. Go a different direction. But if you're bored, we're all going to be bored. Who the hell wants to look at bored? So the idea is, I think you have to love what you do. Oh, I think you have to have yeah. a, a passion. And you know what? Passion is not containable. Excitement, enthusiasm, man, you can't package that. It just bursts out. It just, it just goes all over the place. That's part of the alchemy of the creative process. That passion for, for sounds, for minor keys, whatever it is, it's that passion that drives it. That's the alchemy and that's love. I agree. I completely agree. I, I think, if, 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 if there's no love behind the art or passion, you're right. The, the person who's creating it is not going to be impressed by it. And the people that are looking at it are not going to be impressed no. by it. No, they're not. And God knows the world right now, we, we need, we need passionate art. We need the musicians. We need, uh, the writers, the poets, we need the uh, we need all that right now more than ever. Andy Warhol's soup can. Yeah. Is that art? In the context of what the time was, if you if you look just briefly at the time in the forties and fifties, all this abstract expressionism uh, was was very very popular. Uh, art that wasn't about something. Up until that time, art was a window mm-hmm. that you look through to see what am I looking at? What is the story? So then, you know, the Dadaists come along, the abstract expressionists come along. All these different art movements are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's enough that it's a painting. It doesn't have to be shackled to a story. So it blew the lid off of what art could be, its possibilities. And so, the world, you know, the, the creative world was going there in these abstract paintings. And then along comes a guy like Andy Warhol, and he's taking the everyday object. And when he showed those soup cans, he blew the lid off of the distinction between high art and low art. High art said, well, you can't paint, uh, paint cans. The same people that said that told 
Monet and Manet, you cannot paint prostitutes. What the hell's the matter with you? You can't paint people in a bar. That's so vulgar. What are you thinking? So in a, in a, a broader sweep, historical context, you can see why when the public saw paint, uh, the, the soup cans, they go, how can you call that art? But then he isolated images of Marilyn Monroe, Chairman yeah. Mao. And then he started to take other things and along, and then there's Jasper Johns taking the American flag and making that the subject of the painting. And so you had these people saying, wait a minute, artists saying, look at the everydayness around us as potential to paint about. And who's to say that's not art? And going back to your question, is it bad art? Is it good art? I, I'm going to answer you by, do the, do the soup cans resonate with you? Did you have an aha moment thinking, geez, I never, I never looked at the things around me like that before. Mm. I never thought to. I didn't have to because art was in the museum on the wall with a, with a, a little plaque saying, this is art. Or the curator told me. But now you're looking at soup cans. And Marilyn Monroe, what the hell is that, you know? Well, the Marilyn, well, the Marilyn Monroe pictures, I think, were fantastic. One of the things about the soup can is that they're at the Philadelphia Art Museum is where I saw it. I, I guess they're still there. Um, but Philadelphia is right across the street river from Camden, New Jersey, yeah. which was where they made the soup. And I remember the soup factory had the giant soup can on top of the factory. Oh, nice. Like, it was huge. It was like, like, it must have been like four or five stories, this gigantic soup can on top of the building. So that's kind of like what it makes me think about. And that's, that's what we were talking about earlier, Gary. Everybody brings their own viewpoint, their joys, their sorrows, their life to the work of art. And because you've lived with that with the giant soup cans... That, that's possibly your frame of reference for the soup cans. Maybe they don't speak to you. You'd rather see the big ones on the building. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, really. But, but, you know, that's fine. We, we are the curators. It's like, um, again, when students say, how do you know it's art? So I ask them, so you, you really like this girl. You want to ask her out and, Everything she does, you just think is wonderful. Now, do you need a curator to tap you on the shoulder and say, now, the reason you are interested in this this person is because they're always funny, they're always pleasant. Are they instructing you? No, you just feel it. You feel it. You're drawn towards this person. So you can be drawn to some works of art, and others can repulse the hell out of you, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I guess, I, don't, I, just, I guess that's just what the cans remind me of, is that... Mm-hmm. Is the old Campbell's factory, you know, and so it makes me think of a time, you know, that's sort of gone now. Yeah, yeah, it is. Hmm. Do you have um, any favorite abstract pieces? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, when uh, just before I went to college, uh, I I took a community college art history class. And so they're showing contemporary art, and up on the screen comes a Willem de Kooning. I damn near fell off my chair. I gasped mentally. It was the most ugly, beautiful thing I had ever seen. And it it took the wind right out of me. And I guess that's when 
this whole thing about contradiction, I began to fall in love with contradiction then. I couldn't understand how something so revolting and ugly was so beautiful at the same time. I didn't know what that meant. So for me, my first love was Bill de Kooning and some of his work, um, they were just really out there. And then, uh, oh yeah, you know, the, the abstract expressionists, I, I really love their work. And, um, yeah. Do you like Salvador Dali? Dolly is fine. Uh, he's, he doesn't trip my switch. I think for his time, he was brilliant. He is brilliant. Uh, those visual puns, uh, what he brought to his work, uh, I, I think was just amazing. Yeah. Interesting. Um, do you have an artist that you particularly don't care for? Oh, there's art that, that forms. That yeah. Yeah, there's art forms that I don't care for. Um, you know, because someone's an artist doesn't mean that they love all art. I think it's like very idiosyncratic. It's like our our opinions, our tastes in things. Um, there's some artists that that just uh, leave me cold, and others that I think, oh my god, I wish I would have done that. That's beautiful. Oh my god, you know. Um, I know my early first loves uh, was early Renaissance Giotto, and. Um, uh, Piero della Francesca, Andrea Mateña. Uh, we're looking at 1400s. Um, my family never talked about art. Hmm. I went to Catholic school. I didn't have art classes. I don't know why I became an artist or why, but uh, I was 12 years old and I went to uh, Hudson's department store in Michigan. I'm from Detroit. And on the top floor, they had a bookstore. And I grabbed this book, Western History Painting. I opened it up and I saw Giotto. And I... I looked at that, and it was like looking at my family history. That's how it felt. It felt so intimate. And Giotto came when, uh, up until him, there was these icons, you know, in the gold with the Madonna, and they're mm -hmm. very rigid. And then out of the blue, Giotto comes along, and he paints the St. Francis series realistically with such tenderness, such poignancy. And he did the St. Francis frescoes. And each of the, I looked at this. I, I couldn't even, I, I just, I had enough money in my pocket to buy the book. And I tell you, I thought I had the Holy Grail. And to this day, I love Giotto more than ever. Over the years, I have pictures of his work in my bathroom. I have it all over the house. And I see awesome. something different every time. I think, you son of a, how did you know to do that? Or how did you figure, I'm always, like, I, I want to talk to the guy. Mm -hmm. You know, now, I was raised Italian Catholic, okay, which means if you have a saint, I can tell you anything about the saint. <laughs> and we're raised to talk to saints, right? I mean, right. so you talk to saints. But I, I was raised in my mind to talk to the artists. I talk to the artists. I always have. I love them. To me, the writers, the artists, the musicians, the rabble rousers, those and the saints, the troublemaking saints. Those are my saints. All Mine of too. Them. Mine too. There you go. There you go. <laughs> then you understand. I do. I totally understand. Because I think, I don't know, that it, it, again, like if, if you can spark an emotion or creativity in another human being yeah. or a new idea, it can change a person's life. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it's about. It, it, there's only one question we can ask ourselves when it's time to go. 
One question only. Did my being here make a difference? That is the only question in my mind that I want to ask. Hmm. Me too. Yeah. That's why you do what you do. That's why you're podcasting and talking to people and touching lives. Yeah. Wow. So are you still teaching? No, I stopped teaching a couple years ago. Um, I, I jumped back in last March and taught at the arts high school for a semester. Uh, I designed a class, Mixed Media in Urgent Times. <laughs> and uh, so I taught for a quarter. And um, it's because when I left teaching, I think that I started the podcast. I really miss it. And I do a lot of guest lecturing. I was at McAllister College. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I go different places and, and, and talk. Um, I really miss it. I miss that uh, that connection with kids. So podcasting for me is sort of like a different way of teaching. Only I'm doing a lot more listening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> um, so before we wrap it up, I want to thank yeah. you for coming on. This is a fantastic interview, and you're welcome back anytime. Um, well, where, thank you. Where's my, the best place for my listeners to find you, find your art, find your podcast? Okay, if they go to www pat benincasa hyphen art.com or just google my name you'll go to my web website and the last name is b-e-n-i-n-c-a-s-a so if you do pat benincasa you can go to my website you'll see the podcast you'll see the paintings the sculptures you'll see everything all right. And uh, people don't have to remember how to spell that last name because there'll be a link for it in your notes to this episode. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. That's like I trying, know it's, it's like trying to remember my last name. I was going to say, you understand the problem. Yeah. I saw your name. I thought, oh, no, a fellow traveler. I, yes. He gets it. The guy knows. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for being on. And it was a pleasure having you. And hang on for one moment while I play the outro. Okay, thank you, Gary, for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.